Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I am delighted this evening to welcome Lord David Sainsbury here to the LSE. Uh, he will be launching his new book, Windows of Opportunity, How Nations Create Wealth. Lord Sainsbury brings a unique perspective, having been both a leading business leader as chair of Sainsbury from 1992 to 1998, but also a leading policymaker as Minister of Science and Innovation from 1998 to 2006. And to give you a flavor of the unique perspective, experience, and influence of his ideas, I was going to invite Gordon Brown who really does need no introduction, uh, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and currently UN Special Envoy for Education, to say a few words about Lord Sainsbury and the work that they did together in science and the influence of the ideas in this book. Uh, just a quick logistical point for those of you who are tweeting, uh, the tweet hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Wealth. Let me invite Gordon Brown. Can I, can I say, first of all, what a pleasure it is to be back at the LSE, to be with you, Manish, who have taught us how to combine academic work and work in government, and also to be with so many people here for the launch of Lord Sainsbury's uh, book. Uh, David Sainsbury is not only one of our best-known philanthropists across the United Kingdom, but he was the most successful science minister this country has ever seen. He doubled the science uh, budget, uh, made new arrangements uh, for renovation of the science labs, supported the universities, supported the transfer of technology, and then he went on to do what I think is a path-breaking report, a race to the top, which I think he'll be talking about in a few minutes, about how we can uh, gain competitive advantage in the future, and then he went on, not in the government that I was involved in, but uh, with the current government, uh, trying to transform and indeed making proposals that will transform technical and vocational education in this country. So in every area of industrial policy, science, innovation, research, training, vocational education and universities, David Sainsbury has played a pivotal role in the development of United Kingdom policy over these last 20 or more years. And now he has written this up in a book, uh, Windows uh, of Opportunity, which I highly recommend uh, uh, to you. The LSE is about ideas. I was telling the story the other day to, to, to Minouche uh, about how George Bernard Shaw was one of the founders of the London School of Economics in 1906. And in 1945, there was this great debate between him and Michael Foote, who was then a young journalist. And he had written an article, George Bernard Shaw, with his new ideas for the future. Michael Foote wrote back in the Tribune newspaper and said, George Bernard Shaw, his ideas are 20 years out of date. Bernard Shaw took a few days before replying and then wrote back and said, yes, it was true. He'd written the, these ideas first 20 years ago, but they were 50 years ahead of their time. <laughs> I think many of these ideas are ahead of their time, and I think we've got to look at them very carefully. What David is saying, taking on Adam Smith, and I think he'll come to this in a few minutes, is that we have constantly talked about markets and talked about stability, and all of these are important to the running of the economy. But the driver of productivity and the driver of growth is innovation. 
And when he wrote about race to the top, what he was actually saying, David, was we have to get used to the fact we have international competition, including Asia, America, Europe, uh, competing uh, with Britain. I've been in China uh, many times in, in recent years, and people have been quite skeptical about China's record in innovation. I was there a few uh, years ago with the Indian trade minister, and the Indian trade minister was very skeptical of what was being achieved in China. And he told me this story about uh, China and innovation. He said it was winter. He'd arrived in China. He said it was snowing, and he had to no coat with him. So he went into the international shop in China and bought and went to find a coat. So he got a black cashmere coat. Asked the assistant how much it cost. It was the right price, the $300 or something. And he said to buy it. And then he said to the assistant, but there's a problem here. There's no tag on the uh, coat. There's no label. I don't know who the maker is. And the assistant said, well, what label do you want? I'll sew you on Armani or Canali or Dior. What, what, what do you want? And of course, this was the Indian trade minister making the point that China was imitating other people's inventions or stealing them or what we now call forced technology transfer. What David, I think, will prove to you this evening is that innovation is happening everywhere. Uh, that it's not exclusive to Europe or America, that China is moving forward, particularly in artificial intelligence and in other areas, and that all of us have got to be involved in winning this race to the top. I give you David Sainsbury. Thank you. Actually, after that, you probably don't need to listen to me because that was a brilliant summary of, of, of the book. Uh, and of course, uh, what I did as Minister of Science, I couldn't have done without uh, Gordon's support uh, for science and innovation, uh, which was a huge, uh, huge bonus. So, let me start uh, by saying what my book is about. Um, I think uh, what I need to do first is just show you two uh, charts, which I think are very important because they show uh, that we are in the midst of a very dramatic change uh, in the distribution of wealth uh, in the world. And this is very uh, significant. Uh, this chart shows you uh, the distribution of GDP uh, starting back in the year 1000 uh, AD. And if you, if you look back there, you'll see actually the wealthy countries uh, with 50, 51%. Uh, of the world's GDP were in fact China and India, and the G7 countries, which were basically Western democracies, uh, only had 7%. And that position uh, continued uh, we, in the sort of 16th, 17th century. We got slightly higher, but it dramatically changes uh, in about 1820, uh, when you have the Industrial Revolution in England, uh, and uh, uh, that dramatically changes things, and from that point, and then of course, uh, the Industrial Regi uh, Revolution spreads across Europe uh, and to America, and what you see is the G7 countries go dramatically up, uh, and they reach about 67% uh, in 1990. Uh, China and India uh, come down dramatically. So about 1990, we're at two-thirds of the world GDP is the G7 countries. It plateaus for a bit, and then it starts dramatically coming down. So today we have uh, less than 50% uh, 
uh, of the world's uh, GDP. Uh, turning to the next slide, uh, this is uh, also covers the period 1990 uh, to 2013. And what you can, this is just the labor productivity growth trend, it's in fact the trending growth of the G7 countries between 1973 and 2013. And again, what you see is that about 1990, all of them start on a declining rate of economic growth, coming down at the current moment to very low levels of economic growth. And what I'm going to say uh, today uh, is, is incredibly simple. It is that there is a connection between these two. And in the G7 countries, our slow rate of growth uh, is, a, is a result of competition uh, from the developing worlds. And you may say, well, oh, that's pretty obvious. Uh, you know, isn't that obvious? Uh, competition. Uh, we have a declining growth rate as the Asian countries get faster. The interesting thing is uh, that this is the one thing uh, that no neoclassical economists uh, will agree to. Uh, they, they describe this declining growth rates of the G7, which is clearly very important, as simply a productivity puzzle. Uh, and the one thing they agreed on is it's nothing to do with competition. Almost as a matter of article of faith, uh, they believe that free trade is good for everyone and therefore, declining rates of growth uh, cannot be due uh, to competition. And I'm going to say, no, on the contrary, that's what they're about. And to make that clear, uh, neoclassical economics, of course, is, is largely about uh, market efficiency. It's basically the idea uh, that economic growth comes from market efficiency. If you have market efficiency and the market allocates uh, the right amount of capital and labor, uh, to uh, the, the firms uh, in an economy, that's what you get economic growth. What I'm going to argue uh, is now there is a, a different, a better way of looking at economic growth, uh, which is what I've called a production capability theory, and it's the ability uh, of companies uh, to innovate and create competitive advantage uh, that drives an economy, uh, and therefore uh, when we lose that competitive advantage, uh, that's when we have slow economic growth. I think a good way of looking at, uh, a way of getting into the whole subject of economic growth uh, is to start by saying, uh, what, it, how, what is it that we're actually measuring? It's very important to get this clear right at the start. And I think it's important to understand, as I'm sure most of you do, that what you're actually measuring is GDP per capita in the economy. And GDP per capita in the economy is in fact the sum of value-added per capita of all economic organizations in the economy. The next obvious question then is how do firms increase their value-added per capita? Value-added per capita in this case is uh, the value of the product sold minus uh, the value of the inputs into the process. So how do firms uh, increase uh, the value added per capita? And they can do this in, in two ways. They can do it through production efficiency. Uh, 
So you, that is, you can just make the process of uh, making the goods more efficient, have less people. Uh, if you take uh, Henry Ford and the production line, that was an increase in production efficiency. But the other way you can do it uh, is through competitive advantage. And uh, uh, when, for example, Steve Jobs uh, in crea uh, created uh, the iPhone, uh, that wasn't something which was more efficient. It was a product which was much more attractive uh, to the consumers. And because it's more attractive to the consumers, uh, that means they will pay more for it. And that's why uh, uh, iPhone is incredibly high value-added, because people will be prepared uh, to pay a lot of money for it. So the next question, obviously, is what is it that drives production efficiency and competitive advantage? And you can see, uh, from what I've said, that obviously innovation, innovation either in production methods or innovation to give you competitive advantage, uh, is what drives, uh, 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 what drives a process of growth through production efficiency or competitive advantage. So what are the conclusions from that? Well, the conclusions are that innovation is the engine of economic growth. And the question then is, how do you get innovation? And the argument in the book is that you get innovation through what I've called a capability uh, market opportunity dynamic. That is to say, you must, you must have the opportunity uh, for innovation because of technological change, but you must also have the firms which have the capability to take advantage uh, of that uh, technological uh, opportunity. You'll see at the bottom there's a rather cryptic uh, message which says carrots versus iPhones. Uh, that is just to remind me to make the point that of course the opportunities uh, for innovation are enormously varied uh, over different sectors. Innovation does not take place uh, as someone said, like yeast across the whole economy, uh, it's more like uh, mushrooms, it springs up uh, in different places. And the result of that uh, is very interestingly uh, that you get very different value added per capita for different sectors in the economy. And these, these figures, which are for the UK economy in 2016, um, of rather typical um, of what you'll see across the world. Uh, manufacturing is, is quite high, you can see here, uh, 48 pounds per hour. And then there are services. And one of the most ex extraordinary uh, things is al almost all economic analysis treats services as one, one category. But in fact, there are two very different kinds uh, of services uh, which have very different uh, value-added per capita. So you have high-value-added services, and you can see 60 pounds per hour, and that's by and large things like legal services, financial services, which has a high value-added. And then there is low-value-added services, usually non-tradable goods, uh, and these are things like distribution centers, uh, hairdressing, uh, retail uh, services, which actually have a rather low uh, value-added uh, uh, per capita, uh, value-added per capita. 
agriculture, almost universally, um, has very low uh, value added per capita. And that is the reason is it's very difficult to get innovation uh, on competitive advantage um, on something like carrots. Uh, the carrot is a carrot. Uh, it may be slightly longer, it may be slightly tastier, but basically you cannot get competitive advantage. So if you go uh, to a supermarket and say, I've got, I want to sell you carrots and I want a price increase uh, because uh, you know, times are hard, uh, the supermarket chain will uh, unfortunately say to you, but there are lots and lots of other people who are also trying to sell carrots and they're much the same and we're not going to give you a price increase. So universally, agriculture is, is low value added. And then the Office of the National Statistics produces this other category. It's all treated as one category. Uh, but it covers uh, construction and utilities, which has rather a high level, uh, and then uh, uh, extraction of crude petroleum and natural gas, which has an enormously high value-added per capita. And you just need to bear that in mind, because when we start talking uh, later on in the talk about why our performance uh, on economic growth has been disastrously low since the financial crash, one of the explanations uh, is quite simply uh, that uh, in the run-up to financial crash, and I think not particularly related to this, uh, the value of oil was very high, and we were taking large quantities, large number of barrels uh, out of the North Sea oil. Both the volume we we're taking out and the price have crashed down. This has an enormous effect on our growth rate, um, uh, uh, and is main, one of the main explanations of why our growth rate since uh, the crash has been so low. What is extraordinary, I mean, maybe I can ask you this question, or just ask you to ask yourself. I mean, how many of you heard uh, that the reason for what is endlessly described as a productivity puzzle by why is ours the lowest rate of growth in Europe, uh, of, well, I think of all the G7 countries other than Italy since the financial crash, has anyone ever mentioned the fact that actually North Sea oil uh, is one of the major uh, causes of this? because uh, it is, as I'll show you the figures, uh, it is an extraordinary uh, large part of the story. So what this tells you is if you're looking at the growth rate of a country, uh, you need to look at two things. One is the rate of growth or decline in value added per capita in each sector. Uh, and secondly, the shift of employment uh, between different sectors. Because the problem we have in this country over recent years uh, is we haven't had, in fact we've had rather uh, very low growth in value added per capita in manufacturing, but it's a declining part uh, of our economy. And what we've been doing is creating masses of low value added service jobs. Uh, and of course, uh, with low, low value added per capita, and that is the explanation of our declining rate uh, of economic growth. Uh, the, the jobs uh, that you will, I mean, which come in this category of low value added per capita are, of course, all those jobs in the gig economy, the people delivering the pizza to your door, 
this is low value added and will never be uh, high value added uh, uh, as a sector. This is one other uh, point, um, and this is um, what Gordon was referring to, which is this question of the race to the top. Uh, many economists over the years have pointed out that there is a kind of ladder of development uh, which all countries uh, go through. Uh, no country starts economic growth uh, by trying to be in the area space of pharmaceuticals. Almost all countries start in the same place, uh, which is, uh, as you can see, a cheap clothes assembly of electronic components. That's where all countries pretty well start. And what they try and do, and that gives you lots of jobs, and you can be competitive in that because it's easy to do, uh, and low wages give you a, a significant advantage. And then what you try and do is move up the ladder of development uh, into things uh, which are slightly more difficult to do, uh, but are at the same time more profitable. And they're all profitable because less people can do them. Uh, ending up at the top with things like aerospace and pharmaceuticals, um, which um, very few people can actually do well, uh, and those are the ones where you get very high uh, value added. Uh, now the point of this is um, that if you are a developed country up here, and you come in competition uh, from developing countries who are moving up, uh, it isn't simply a zero-sum game. I, what they gain, you lose, because if you can move up into higher value-added areas uh, up here, uh, then by, through innovation, you can keep uh, moving up in terms of higher value-added. And that's why it's, it's rightly called, I think, a race to the top. What you should not do, uh, and what governments quite often attempted to do is to compete with these countries uh, by paying lower wages, uh, cutting back uh, on all kinds of benefits and so on, uh, and trying to compete with them on price, uh, because you'll never compete with them on price, uh, because there are plenty of other countries always coming up uh, with cheap labor, and you won't win that battle. So what are the policy implications uh, of this? Well, first of all, innovation becomes the engine of economic growth, and it should be something uh, that you actually measure uh, and report on because it's so significant. Secondly, governments do need to think in terms of uh, sectors and regional policies. Now, it's obvious why you need to look at uh, sectors uh, the reason why you need to look at sectors in regional policies is because when you look at uh, the differences uh, in uh, wealth of different regions, uh, the cause of this is actually what are the kind of companies in those places. Uh, and uh, if, uh, if you look around the north of England, of course it's a story where in the past there were high value added manufacturing jobs uh, those have been lost through competition and they've been replaced by low-value-added service jobs. And the only way we will transform that and level up, as we're trying to do now, is by getting high-value-added companies uh, to grow up in those areas. 
The fourth point is uh, that government should support the diffusion of, of knowledge uh, and innovation. Uh, the idea of this is all driven by, in neoclassical economics, is driven by the rational manager uh, who knows exactly uh, what the risks and rewards of every move he could make uh, is, a, is a fantasy. Uh, if ever any of you sat on trade association uh, meetings, uh, you'll know that the, you, know, you look around and you say, are we a group of rational uh, individuals? And the answer is no. Um, it's not driven by that. It's driven by entrepreneurs, uh, not by rational managers. And actually, the, go the government has a role in terms of supporting diffusion of knowledge. As, for example, Industry 4, uh, as you know, we're just coming up to a new revolution uh, in manufacturing uh, called Industry 4, which is really about the digitalization of manufacturing. Uh, every, pretty well every country and the world now has a program of diffusing uh, uh, methods of Industry 4. We have one, uh, and it's not very good. Uh, manufacturing, the other point to make here is, for policy terms, there's of course this big debate, does it matter we lose our manufacturing uh, industries? And uh, the sort of general view of neoclassical economists and policy advisors, no, it doesn't matter, because actually the economy is moving towards service industries, uh, so that's all right. Uh, we will just uh, have fewer manufacturing jobs. Of course, if you look at the value-added per capita, uh, yeah, that's all right if you're moving from manufacturing uh, to financial services and legal services. It's not all right if you're moving from manufacturing to low-value-added uh, services. And there is a limit to the amount, even in this country or America, of jobs that you can have uh, in financial and legal services. So losing jobs in manufacturing uh, and losing those high-value-added manufacturing is a serious issue and almost any growth policy um, is going to involve uh, having more manufacturing jobs. Just quickly, these are the areas where, of course, uh, government can have a real impact uh, in terms of supporting innovation uh, through uh, innovation policy, uh, supporting R&D, supporting knowledge transfer systems and so on, uh, through education and training policy, uh, through governance and financing of firms, and through regional and city policy. I think the only one that needs to be explained is government and financing of firms. Um, uh, we do have now a real problem uh, in this country and also in America uh, with our system of governance uh, of companies and the financing of them. And this is because uh, in the old days when the whole theory uh, of uh, shareholders and capitalism was developed, uh, you had businesses and they had long-term shareholders and everyone agreed that those shareholders were the best person to look at the policies of the company and see that they would lead long-term uh, profitability. Of course, today, uh, most of uh, the investors in company are very short-term. Um, so, for instance, you have high-frequency traders, and you're lucky if they're in it for three days. Uh, and uh, we've seen a, a complete collapse in the length of time of investors in companies. 
I think it's gone down in recent years from sort of eight years to eight months. And what that tells you is that actually most investors are not interested in the long term. They're not interested at all in the long term. What they are interested in is what does the company do over the next five, uh, five or six months. Uh, and of course what they want to see is announcements uh, that will push the share price up. And that's why you've seen in America uh, the most appalling situation of which a huge sums of money are gained from American companies into share buybacks. Uh, so if you look now in America at the present moment, the amount that goes out in dividends is gone up from about 20% to 60% of earnings and 37% in the recent figures went out in share buybacks, leaving, as you can see, 3% for long-term investment. And so what this system has become uh, is not a system for wealth creation, uh, it's become a system for wealth extraction. What people want is the dividends, the share buybacks, which will push up the share price uh, and do that over the next uh, 12 years. And that is why we have a problem uh, on investment. Uh, and that's a major issue. And I think this is something that in due course governments are really going to have to uh, tackle. Uh, now, I, I also believe that uh, you can't just put these uh, 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 ideas of theory out. You also need to be able to show uh, that in practice they explain uh, what, is, uh, what is happening and has happened uh, in the world in the past. And to do that was a famous article by an American economist called Moses Abramovich, in which he looked at uh, three situations of economic growth. One where a country is forging ahead at the technological frontier, one where they're uh, catching up, and one where they're falling behind. And so I thought I would take three examples and see whether uh, my theory of economic growth could explain those three situations. And so the first one I took was, as you can see, uh, the cotton industry um, in England in the Industrial Revolution. So the first thing is, was the Industrial Revolution uh, driven by rapid uh, value-added increases in one or two sectors? And the answer is, yes, it was. Uh, there were other ones, the railways and iron and so on, but the big one in England uh, was the cotton industry. So the question is, um, how, do we, um, how do we in England uh, be so successful in the cotton industry? I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, story. And I think you can explain it by this uh, capability opportunity dynamic. Um, uh, it's not uh, generally known, but actually the reason we, we uh, got an opportunity uh, in cotton was because it was a very misjudged piece of protectionism. Uh, as you probably know, our great wealth uh, in the 16th, 17th century was in fact as a woolen, provider of woolen cloth. Uh, and that's why uh, today, if you ever go to the House of Lords and you sit there for a long time, you realize that actually the Speaker of the House of Lords is sitting on the wool sack. And that goes back to the time when we wanted to demonstrate 
uh, that wool was a source of our, our, um, our wealth. Uh, and that came under, uh, in the beginning of the 18th century, from pressure from what were called calico goods, which were cotton goods coming in uh, from India. And uh, so a good protectionist measure, as you can see, uh, the government passed two acts of parliament to make it illegal uh, the use and wearing of Indian and Chinese silks and, and Indian cotton cloth. But in fact, uh, cotton garments, um, compared to woolen garments, uh, are very much more attractive, they're much easier to wash and so on. And the British public have decided they like to have cotton garments. And so the very small cotton industry which we had at that point uh, suddenly took off um, and, uh, uh, and grew into this huge world industry. Uh, it was held, of course, by technological innovation, and you, as you can see, the famous examples of the flying shuttle, the spinning jenny, the water frame, and then Samuel, uh, Samuel Crompton's mule, and this, of course, hugely increased uh, the ability uh, to produce uh, these garments. What about the capabilities of British firms? Well, of course, the answer is, and I've never seen this, I mean, I haven't read greatly on uh, the history on the Industrial Revolution, but actually the reason why we were able to be successful was also we did know a lot about spinning and weaving uh, because we had been spinning and weaving wool uh, for two centuries and we knew a lot about it. Uh, and so, of course, we were able to take off uh, and then also we, we, took, we, we took on board what was probably the biggest uh, piece of innovation, which was the idea of the factory, which had originally come uh, from Italy uh, uh, with silk spinning. Uh, and of course that led to, uh, obviously, one of the other great innovations, which is Richard Arkwright's water-powered mill uh, at Cromford. So we had both opportunity uh, and the capability of British firms, and that led to the total value added of industry grew from 2.6% in 1770 to 17% uh, in 1801. Uh, and the export of cotton textiles uh, reached 60% of that output in 1820. And that's how we became this great uh, industrial power. Uh, it wasn't because uh, we already had for some time market efficiency, we had a reasonably efficient market economy, what took off was production capability. Uh, if you now turn to the Asian miracle, the Asian miracle is interesting because it is endlessly debated uh, by the World Bank and other august organizations uh, over recent years. Why was it suddenly uh, that Asian countries uh, were able to be um, so successful and grow so fast. And this is debated by economists entirely in political economy terms. Did, the, did governments play a part in this or not? But that isn't really the interesting story. The interesting story is why were there so many new opportunities for these countries? And I think you can show there were three things. First of all, there was trade liberalization. We always talk about trade liberalization uh, as if the only thing that mattered was uh, trade liberalization for the developed countries. The whole point is trade liberalization is hugely advantageous 
uh, to Asian countries uh, because it opened up all sorts of markets where there weren't tariffs. Secondly, uh, again, really interesting point, I think, was there was changes on transport, of which the most important was containerization. Uh, if you go back before the 1960s, uh, you had to, to get things from, say, China to England by ship, and what happened is it got lost, usually, in the docks and the uh, dock areas, and you didn't know whether you would get it and, and so on. Uh, and also, of course, it took a long time. Containerization is one of the biggest impacts on trade across the world, uh, and then, of course, later on, air freight. And the other dramatically important thing was the start of global value chains. Um, this, is, this is the thing of having a Western country put in a lot of manufacturing uh, into a developing country. And this is enormously helpful uh, for the economic growth of developing countries because, of course, um, uh, you instead of having to, de to develop a product, uh, make it and distribute it, you can start by just manufacturing it uh, and that, of course, and then move on to the other stages uh, gradually. In terms of the capabilities of firms, uh, well, the global value uh, chain also helps you because, uh, it's an, uh, of course, the companies who put the manufacturing abroad will help you uh, learn to do the manufacturing. The second reason, of course, was the movement of people, particularly students, going to universities abroad. Now, the reason why China will be uh, a very successful uh, country uh, scientifically uh, within maybe 20 years uh, is, of course, that all, almost all its top scientists have been trained uh, in American universities, and most, quite a lot of those then went to Silicon Valley and learned about entrepreneurship and are now going back uh, to China. Uh, and, of course, there's also the manif uh, developing countries learned how you could take technology from a developed country and uh, diffuse it out to their companies. And I've given the example of the Taiwanese company uh, and the electronic industry. Uh, okay, so how does that all explain? Now, uh, the final thing is, how does that explain the slow growth rate of the UK? And this is a chart which I got the National Institute of Economic and Social Research to do, and it takes the different areas, uh, the top line, the sort of blue line here, uh, and that is the results uh, of all the things that have happened in manufacturing. And it's broken down to, between what happened within the, the industry uh, and then what happened as a result of movements between uh, industries. And you can see how all that adds up uh, to producing this low uh, figure of low growth up to this point and then very poor results in the last 10 years. Um, actually, the total story because uh, this is quite difficult to take on board, and because of the way these figures are shown, doesn't tell you the complete story. The story is, as I told you before, losing uh, uh, opposition in manufacturing industries and putting a large amount uh, into the low-value-added service industries. Uh, a final chart on this is what I mentioned to you before, 
Why is it? It's a productivity puzzle. Uh, you will find no one. I th well, there are some people who, who have uh, explanations of this, but none of them are satisfactory. Why was the UK rate of labour productivity growth between 2007 and 16 underperform all G7 countries uh, except Italy? It isn't a productivity puzzle. It's very clear from the figures. It was because it was hit by the fall in labour productivity, i.e. value added per capita, in two major sectors. The first, crude oil and petroleum, GVA per hour, fell from 56% and share of the economy fell by 56%. The share of the economy slumped from 1.85 uh, to 0.73 in 2016. And you have a similar situation uh, in financial services. Of course, in the run-up uh, to the financial crash, when you've got a credit boom uh, going nicely along, you make a fortune uh, in financial services. You have masses of high-level takeovers. Everyone wants to have derivatives and so on. You make a fortune. Financial crash comes, uh, and uh, the value-added per capita goes sharply down. And those two facts uh, account for our poor uh, productivity performance, our poor growth performance uh, in this, this period. So I think a final uh, chart. Uh, what does this tell us? And what all this is telling you is that we're involved in a race to the top. We have to, we are competing against uh, countries, developing countries. This is not a zero-sum game. Uh, it's a race to the top. Because if we can innovate, create new products, high-evaluated products, uh, we can continue to grow uh, and do extremely well. Because if the pie is bigger, then everyone can have a bigger share. But if we don't innovate and create new high-evaluated products and services, our national standard of living could decline. There is nothing which says that our standard of living can only go one way upwards. If we lose uh, our value added per capita uh, in our industries, you could see a situation uh, of negative uh, a decline in our national standard of living. So that's the cheerful message of my book, and, and that's what I'd like to leave you with. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to start with a question and then I'm going to turn to the audience and I'll take questions in batches of three uh, and then let Lord Sainsbury answer them. And I'm going to start with a question on the diffusion of technology. Um, and one of the puzzles is, one of the observations about the current situation is that within any industrial, within any sector in the economy, you have a huge dispersion of productivity between very good performing firms and very poorly performing firms. And economists usually rely on competition to get the poorly performing firms up to the technological right. frontier. And in some sectors, like supermarkets, highly competitive, lots of innovation, you know, people are pushing. For in other sectors, in, me in most sectors of the UK economy, that dispersion is quite prevalent. And I wonder whether you'd say something about why you think that is. And if I may just add uh, another part to the question, buybacks. 
Yeah. Share buybacks basically mean that management has run out of ideas, that they can't think of anything else to invest in. And so firms are sort of eating themselves in order to pay money to shareholders because they don't have any other new innovations that they... Again, another symptom of lack of innovation at the firm level. What's your diagnosis of those phenomenon? Well, I, th I think your first question is, is very much um, a Bank of England question. It comes from Andy Haldane and his work, which shows that there's more, a longer tail okay. of uh, low-valuated companies. I think he makes a big mistake in thinking that these are potentially high-valuated companies which are poorly performing. Hmm. Uh, Actually, we can, you, can, uh, can, you can show it rather quickly that they're not. They're actually low-valuated businesses, and they will always be low-valuated businesses. This is your hairdresser. This is your distribution center, and so on. These are low-valuated businesses. They're always. And so it's not a diffusion problem. It is of technology. Sector, it's, it's a structural problem, mm. and it's a result of, the, of a situation where we've been growing lots and lots of low-value-added uh, products. So it's, it's, not, it's not about diffusion. Uh, there's nothing you can much do to diffuse anything to hairdressing saloons. They always will be uh, low-value-added. Um, the second one about buybacks. Mm. Um, I think this is uh, where the kind of theory, uh, finance theory, goes completely mm. wrong. And the, the finance theory is, of course, uh, if, if the business um, uh, has no ideas for innovation, uh, then it should do share buybacks, give essentially the money back to the shareholders, so they can use that uh, in areas where there is innovation. Uh, sadly, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is uh, uh, company uh, chief executives uh, not producing very good results and wanting to keep the share price up because uh, their remuneration is tied to the share value price. Mm -hmm. What is the way you can do that? Well, the way you can do that is to have share buybacks. That will push the share price up. Uh, so it, it's, I'm afraid it's not to do with the lack of innovation. A lot, you can look at all these companies. I mean, this is universal across... American industry at a horrendous uh, level. Uh, it's a failure of corporate governance, not a failure of, uh, of, of innovation. Okay. Let me open the floor to questions. Can I see some show of hands? I always like to start with a woman if I can. Can I find a woman? All right, I'll come back to you. I want more women in the second round. Uh, can I have, uh, let's start with Andres, and then the woman, the, the man behind you, and then the gentleman behind you, those three. And I'll come to the top at the next round. You make a very, uh, Andres Velasco, the Dean of School of Public Policy here at the LSE. You make a very compelling case for active government policies to promote innovation not just horizontally, but vertically, which means actually choosing sectors, and I have no problem with that. The next stage along the argument must be, some countries have done that very successfully, and we can learn from them, 
Other countries have done it very badly, and we can also learn from that. And what we have to learn about, presumably, is the governance arrangements that allowed some countries to do it well, while other countries did it badly. If we had the proverbial industry and trade minister from country X here, what kinds of arrangements would you suggest that would minimize the risk of getting it wrong and maximize the risk of getting it right? Okay. Thank you, Anders. This is what Peter Mandelson used to call, rather than picking winners, it's losers picking government. <laughs> government yeah, picking yeah. winners, it's losers picking government. Let's take the gentleman right behind you, Anders. Thank you. Um, do I, do I infer that, that your theory, that your hypothesis works in, uh, over here, um, that your hypothesis works uh, in, a, in, in a world that where globalization is a world oil machine, where at the moment we seem to be moving towards protectionism, do your theories still stand? Okay. And then the gentleman behind there. I want to ask a question about innovation and entrepreneurship because there's often a confusion between the two and I think a lot of the problems we've got into policy-wise result from that confusion. Um, in the 80s, we were told we should live in an entrepreneurial society and everybody should be setting up their own businesses. But actually, when you look at the data, and you've hinted at this, but you haven't put it in quite this way. Actually, most small businesses are these low-value-added services, which are things like hairdressers and nail bars and so on, which don't have the potential to uh, escape from being in the Andy Haldane's long tail. And um, innovation is part of entrepreneurship, but most entrepreneurship is very uninnovative. And could you just... It, it's not really a question of definition. It's a question of the real concepts behind. Um, well, the question about um, looking at things on a sexual basis, um, I think the important thing, if you look at the experience of companies, um, is uh, what you want to do is you can pick uh, sectors, you can pick uh, broad technologies and support them, because you can, as a whole, work that out. Um, uh, relatively uh, easily. What you should not get involved in is picking uh, companies or specific products. Uh, because to pick a specific product or company, you really need to now very, have very detailed knowledge uh, of uh, the industry, the company, the product, in a way that uh, planners, civil servants cannot cannot do. And when people try and do that, uh, you can point to an enormously long list of, of failures. Uh, when it comes to picking sectors, and usually this is a question of saying, we have an opportunity in this sector, we can see it already because some companies are exploiting it, um, or whether it's a technology, then actually this is something you, you can do, uh, planners can do. Uh, and have done very successfully. So I think it's a question of how you define this picking winners and what you're trying to pick is, is the issue there. Um, does it work in a world of protectionism? Uh, well, um, 
the, 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 the same economics apply. Uh, where, if, if you want to though, lose the race to the top quickly, then what you do is you have protectionism. Because <laughs> this, this really doesn't work. Uh, so, yeah, the economics are the same, but uh, don't go in for protectionism because it doesn't help. Uh, question of entrepreneurialism and um, innovation. Yeah, I, th I think you need to... Um, well, actually, uh, I think you need to be a bit careful of how you define entrepreneurialism. Uh, to me, entrepreneurialism uh, is about uh, doing what I was talking about here, which is being able uh, to seize opportunities uh, which your company has the capability to exploit. So Steve Jobs was one of the great entrepreneurs, in my view, because he, un he saw that there was this great opportunity to produce um, a personal computer, which was, was user-friendly, and he then was able to put together capabilities to exploit that opportunities. That's entrepreneurism uh, at its best, and it linked to uh, innovation. Uh, this is something quite different from kind of basic management skills, um, which I don't think are particularly on, about entrepreneurialism. It's just about um, keeping the books and all these things uh, right. And if you're a small business, you're not, you're as a whole, I mean obviously there are venture capital business and so on, and that is about entrepreneurialism. Uh, the business I'm talking about, low value added, uh, this is really nothing to do much with either entrepreneurialism um, or innovation. Uh, it's just to do with reasonable business uh, competence. I'm going to go to the top. I think there's a woman in the front row. Any others at the top? I don't think we can get a mic to, but if you shout, I'll repeat your question. And, and then I'll also take some more down here. Who have we got? Steve and the woman back here. Yes, please, go ahead. Um, okay, um, given uh, the current, well, given the climate crisis and the fact that we've known about the climate of oil for many decades now, uh, what, why are we not working harder to supply Okay, so the question is, why aren't we doing more to shift from reliance on more sea oil to new green technologies where there are some real opportunities? Steve. So I thought it was interesting that you only really picked up on education and training in terms of education and training policy and actually didn't really talk about skills deficiencies anywhere in terms of a productivity puzzle, uh, whereas it's fairly obvious it was fairly structural skills problems uh, in many parts of the economy and indeed in many localities, uh, if you take the geographical aspects as well. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, obviously, if you don't have a good enough skills base, uh, however good you are at innovating and producing new technologies, if you do not have uh, uh, skills that will be complementary with those, then you won't be able to boost productivity. And yeah. so, obviously, I'm thinking particularly at the bottom end here, uh, in terms of equal basic skills, of equal literacy and numeracy skills that have, you know, persisted at the bottom end of the education distribution for a long time uh, here and in America uh, and not in other countries where actually 
uh, there have been improvements at the bottom end. Uh, and so I'm kind of interested in what your views are on, 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 uh, on that. Okay. And then woman right back here. Did everybody hear that second question on skills deficiencies? Yes. Yeah. Ah, so the question is views on skills deficiencies and how particularly in the UK and the US the lack of skills at the bottom end of the skills distribution may be a big driver of low productivity relative to other countries. Hello, thank you. Uh, my question is related to the first one of those three about where the green economy fits in and by into your theory and by green economy I mean low carbon, resource efficient and socially inclusive and adding to that the, the economy of well-being and how you see that fitting into your theory. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think all, all these three questions have a common theme, which is why isn't the government doing what I say in my book? And the answer <laughs> is, uh, uh, you tell me. I, mean, I think it's um, uh, clearly an area of major innovation should be in the green economy. Uh, now, there are, there, are, there are one or two places where we actually have uh, done, done this. Um, I think one of the really interesting, exciting things is the creation of wind turbine. Uh, um, uh, the use of wind turbines to generate energy around our coasts. Um, uh, and the fact that this is now, through innovation, the cost of this has come down, so it's pretty much commercial. Uh, what there should have been is a lot more of this. Uh, and this is one of the cases where uh, we haven't got the innovation working. Um, and um, uh, it's both economically and environmentally um, a, a poor performance. I mean, in America, uh, you can see this even more clearly. I mean, the solar panel industry, which is critical to this, uh, was really developed in, in America. Mm. Um, uh, the technology was developed in America, and the first demand for it actually was in California. Uh, today, uh, solar panel industry uh, is now almost totally in China, mm. and I think a bit in, in Germany, and they've lost that uh, whole uh, industry. Which is, which is devastating for the American economy because it was one of the places where they could have got a really large manufacturing base back into America. And they didn't do it, and the reasons, I think, uh, uh, come from what I was saying about corporate governance and share buybacks. Why, why did they not put the money into these areas? It was American industry, the technology that was developed. Uh, they already had a market for it. And the answer was, well, it's capital intensive, uh, and keep our shareholders happy, uh, we're doing uh, share buybacks. Um, uh, so I think that answers the first question as well. Yeah. As far, far as the skills issue, uh, I mean, th this would probably take up, if I talked about my views on this, this would take up the rest of the session. Um, <laughs> it is one of the absolute scandals in this country, um, our approach to technical education. Um, you probably don't know, but the first report which said our technical education is not as good as the Germans was in 1870. 
since then, we have had more reports, more bills uh, than you would believe possible. In the last uh, 35 years, we've had 28 bills in our parliament covering technical education. Mm. We keep messing around with it um, without ever bothering to go and say, what is it that people with good technical education systems do, which we're not doing? And if you go and do that, uh, you learn some very simple lessons, um, uh, which you can then apply. Um, and um, I should say there's a brilliant report on this, uh, which was done uh, by myself for the government, <laughs> um, on what our technical education system should be. Yeah. And uh, it's been, um, uh, to the credit of, of the Conservative government, uh, it's been totally accepted. And they're now putting large sums of money uh, behind it. It's called the T-level system. It's having a proper national system of qualification, uh, which works in the marketplace. Because this is, this is the key to technical education, uh, is that you have a national system of qualifications which everyone understands, um, because that's the way you make it work in the marketplace. The key issue with, with skills is that if someone gets a qualification, they know they can go to an employer and apply for a job and say, I've got this qualification, and the employer knows what that qualification means uh, and what value it has and will therefore employ the person who's got the qualification rather than someone who hasn't. Uh, we have had a system for the last 35 years uh, where we haven't had a generally accepted national system of qualifications. So we have hundreds and hundreds of qualifications. Um, and I mean, if you want to be a plumber, you have a choice of 28 qualifications. Uh, no one knows uh, which ones are valuable and which aren't, and so, of course, uh, people after all give up um, getting them. So uh, I think the new government system, obviously I'm biased, I think is a very good one. It will come in starting in this year. First, It takes quite a long time because you've got to have proper uh, standards and curriculum. And one of the other things is you, you must have that curriculum agreed by industry. Industry will say, these are the skills we want. Uh, it will come in 2020, and I like to think this will change it. If it does, it would be brilliant. Yeah, no, this, this, is, this is another part of it. Um, uh, you, you just need to be very clear. What we've never done is we've put all the emphasis on university, none on technical education, um, and we've had a poor technical education system. And, of course, uh, lots of young people come to 16 and they say, well, there's no point in getting a technical qualification. I don't want to go to university. Um, and there's one other part of this which is important, which is uh, that at um, 18 you give people an opportunity to switch back so that if someone's going on the university course they can, um, and they don't like it, they actually want to do technical stuff, they can move back into the technical education and the people who realise that they actually could uh, go to university and want to, uh, they can switch over as well. Um, and these are very basic things you can see in the good technical education systems around the world, and I hope we're now copying them. Thank okay. you.
in a very good report by the Institute for Government, which you chair, yeah. they show how much the government has tinkered with technical and vocational training over the last yeah. 30, 40 years. Do you think that the government now has a commitment to deliver a coherent program and stick to it without tinkering and putting proper resources behind it? Do you, do you sense that that is going to happen? Um, I think it is. I mean, I think one of the most uh, remarkable things is that the, um, is the Conservative Party has suddenly decided that it is the party of technical education. Uh, this is not something which has been obvious uh, beforehand, but yes. they are, do now really believe in it. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I mean, to the extent that governments are good at delivering things, uh, they will deliver this and do it properly. Back to questions. I'll take here and the gentleman there and the woman back there. And if you could, uh, right here, the woman right here, Silvana, if you want to introduce yourself. Silvana Tanrairo, I'm a professor of economics here at the LSE and uh, I'm also an MPC member at the Bank of England. So one of the countries with um, very good technical education would be Germany. However, Germany didn't escape the productivity slowdown, which I thought is how you started. So would you have something to say about that? Okay. Uh, the gentleman here, white hair. Yes. Could I ask a sort of whimsical question? Why is it that, that so many of the sectors that we have done well in have been pretty dubious, like armaments or gambling, where there have been massive technological advantages, or else the ones you mentioned, like legal services and finance, that are essentially pretty parasitic? Why, why haven't we developed in things like the green economy and the, the industries that we'd probably like to develop? Okay, and the woman back here? The woman right there, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. With all the benefits of innovation, should we also be concerned about AI and robots and uh, you know this this future scenario where uh, robots are doing most of our jobs? Okay. Um, well, of course, technical education is is hugely important for um, uh, innovation and economic growth. But it doesn't guarantee it. Um, you've got to have the other parts, which I, I mentioned. Um, and uh, Germany is, um, I think, suffering um, from some of the problems we are suffering from also, which is uh, because actually it has a higher manufacturing sector, a much bigger manufacturing sector than it's, of course, much more vulnerable uh, to competition from uh, these places like China, uh, Taiwan and so on. So they're, they're suffering from that. And of course what has kept us going uh, is of course the legal and financial services. And this is, this is a weakness. Uh, Germany, it's, not, it's just not such a large part of the economy. So that accounts for their slow growth rate. It's a different story uh, from ours. Um, uh, I, I, I think your thing about um, what industries we've been successful in is not totally fair. I mean, uh, we've been successful in all sorts of industries, starting back with cotton industry and so on. Um, we're, we're still very good at um, pharmaceutical industry. We have a, a decent aerospace industry. Um, we haven't been as good as we should have been about getting into the uh, green economy. Um, 
uh, because I think that we have been slow on a lot of these issues about innovation, uh, where we've been just focused uh, for years um, uh, on market efficiency. Um, so, um, I mean, I think um, uh, this is getting a very controversial area, but I mean, Mrs. Thatcher did a, a very good job of uh, getting rid of a lot of poorly performing companies. She did not do a good job of stimulating mm -hmm. innovation and new industries. Uh, and she had this appalling policy about uh, science. She thought that if government supports uh, science, it drives out uh, private investment in science. And of course that was an absolute disaster. Uh, all she proved was that this is actually not the case. So um, it's partly the obsession with market efficiency at the expense of uh, innovation. Uh, the issue on uh, AI and robotics. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I think uh, we should not worry about too much about this. Uh, this, is, this is the same issue as uh, we had in the, in the cotton industry. Uh, where uh, we had, of course, um, uh, riots and so on against uh, the new factories. Um, and um, uh, they were much more efficient. They used far fewer people. This is the original kind of automation, if you like. Uh, why didn't that create uh, lots of unemployment? Well, the answer is, in these situations, uh, two things happen. One is, and this, was, this is what happened with the cotton industry, if you make much cheaper clothes, cotton clothes, people buy more of them. So you don't necessarily get the fall of, uh, in labor, because people make labor. In the days um, where we're talking about, you were lucky if you had one suit of clothes for the whole of your life. Suddenly you get cheap textiles and people say, well, we actually might run to three sets of governments during our life. And of course, that means you keep up employment. Of course, the other thing is if you automate things, you only do it if you make it cheaper. Uh, if a particular product is cheaper, then people have more money to spend on other things. And um, there was an American economist, I can't remember his name, and he said, the only time we will have a problem is when we reach the point where half of the population are psychoanalyzing the other half of the population <laughs> all the time. Otherwise, there are huge unmet needs which people will spend uh, their money on. And I'll, I'll, to give you an example of, from today's term, think about uh, trainers, personal trainers. When I was young, if you want to take exercise, you put on gym shoes, because they were that far back, and you went for a run, or you played a game of soccer with your friends, whatever. Today, you have to go to a gym, and you have to have a personal trainer. And the number of trainers we have now, personal trainers, and yoga teachers, and <laughs> mindfulness teachers, will sop up the whole of the population, uh, which is made free by automation. Now, whether that's good in terms of uh, quality of life, I don't know, but we won't have a problem uh, on uh, automation. And 
let me say, this, is, this debate has gone on. If you go back and read the literature, uh, this was being debated in the 1930s and 1890s, but this is debated all the time. Uh, and it never, never quite comes to this dire situation. Keynes, of course, wrote a famous um, article on this, in which he said, um, uh, you know, our grandchildren, they really will hardly have to work because we will become so uh, wealthy uh, and, you know, we won't want any more wealth. He couldn't conceive of a world where anyone wanted anything more than a Cambridge Dom wanted for their <laughs> lives. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't for a moment contemplate uh, great masses of people would actually say, we quite like a holiday abroad as well. We would like to be tourists. So you know, there's huge unmet needs. And if we can increase our productivity and innovation, uh, people will happily spend it on that. And there'll be plenty of jobs. But that's a very uh, unusual view and lots of people don't worry about it. But I, I have to say I don't. What about, if I could ask you about the, the, the shift between manufacturing and services and the fact that more and more manufacturing looks like services. So for example, you know, in the energy sector, firms can't make much money selling kit to produce energy, and so they instead make higher margins selling energy services. Yeah. Or in computing, we no longer necessarily buy computers, we buy cloud services, and that actually would now be categorized as a service rather than manufacturing. How, what do you think that impact has on, on the economy? Uh, well, it, it depends whether they're high-value-added services or low-value-added services. Um, because if you're going to low-value-added services, it slows up economic growth. Uh, if it's high-value-added services, I mean, I think if it's Rolls-Royce selling... Um, Transportation services. Yeah, I mean, then this is pretty high-value-added. Um, and so that probably comes in my category of high-value-added services. Uh, some others, it will, it will be low-value-added. And which of these... It is, is what is the important issue. Okay, back to the audience. I think I can do one more round of questions. Take the gentleman here, Julia, and the gentleman there. Maybe we squeeze in the gentleman, the two gentlemen here. Uh, Malcolm D. Next, Guardian. Um, David, where do you put the other five uh, states in the G7? In what order are they doing it well, and in what order are they not? And are there Oh, there's still quite a lot of differences between them. Okay, so rank, rank the G7 in terms of how they're doing on productivity and innovation. The, the, the other two, non-UK, non-US. Julia? Thank you. Um, Julia Back, Oversee Innovation and Entrepreneurship here, but also on the board of UKRI and on the, uh, the PRA at the bank, so a number of different touch points there. There are a couple of other stories, as it were, about innovation and productivity in the UK. And I was just wondering about your reactions to them. The first is that actually we have highly innovative firms, um, but the problem is they grow to a certain point and they grow to be bought. They don't grow to scale up. So then, then they get bought by overseas firms and so the, the investment goes, goes away, for at least in the UK. The second is that uh, we have a lot of innovation um, one of the issues is not so much the rate of innovation, but the slow pace of adoption. Mm. So it's not necessarily the switch into low service, uh, low value service economy, but within that manufacturing economy or within other potentially high value 
uh, areas of the economy, we have low adoption of innovation. So I was just wondering what your reactions were to those two, uh, those two points. Thank you. Uh, gentleman here, and then we'll also add the final, I'll take a fourth, the one in the back. Um, your, your hypothesis or your thesis is based around, you know, what can we do to grow GDP? Uh, and as you've just said yourself, if you grow production, you also grow consumption. So I suppose my question is, in the context of us seeking to, you know, reach a position of carbon neutrality and a sustainable uh, economy, is GDP really the right measure for our society to be tracking? Thank you. And finally, the gentleman in the back. Thank you. Um, mine follows on a little bit from yours and that one, which is that um, how do you feel about the prospects? Sorry, my name's Rupert. I'm a circular economy consultant. Um, the notion that perhaps associated with decoupling GDP possibly, but um, that currently growth is typically associated with consumption of resources. Um, and how do you feel about the role potentially for what the government likes to call um, resource productivity? Um, so the, the notion that you can extract fewer resources or ex ideally extract very little, but generate financial flows through their use and keep them being productive in the economy. Um, it's, a, it's a principle of the circular economy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it seems to be that we, one of the problems we have with growth, one of the planetary boundaries, as they're called, that limit growth, if you agree with that hypothesis, is that there is a, there is a, a, a physical limit to the amount of stuff that we can create stuff from, and therefore wealth and uh, living standards. Um, G, I think the first question was about G, G7 ranking. Um, I, I mean, I think the striking fact is all G7 countries are showing declining rates of growth. Um, so um, I don't think you can pick out one and say they're doing significantly better than the others. I think uh, everyone is facing uh, the same problems and uh, no one is coming strikingly forward as, as uh, doing uh, much better. Uh, the question of um, companies uh, being uh, growing really to be bought, I think is, is, is a real question um, and an incredibly difficult one to, to um, think of a way of dealing with. Uh, it, and it's sort of, um, it, it's, it's part of our psychology as a nation. We're not very greedy. And, uh, uh, and so lots of entrepreneurs, and we, we think quality of life is very important. So lots of young entrepreneurs, um, they set up a, a brilliant business. Uh, uh, they find they can sell this for 20 million. They take, they say, um, uh, well, that's, that's pretty nice, and that, that will see me, um, uh, let me retire and um, do what I really like doing, which is tinkering with old cars or whatever it is, <laughs> and um, off they go, they sell the company. Um, uh, uh, short of encouraging a wave of greediness, <laughs> uh, which says, no, no, you know, I mean, this is what's striking about America, is these young people make 
Um, you know, take Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, he's now worth, I don't know what, 50, 60 billion or something. And you see him there, already being given a grim time by the Senate committee, and you think, why are you doing this? I mean, why are you putting yourself through it? And the answer is, uh, that's what he likes doing. Um, and he probably is a bit worried that it's only 60 billion now and not, not quite catching up with Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> but I don't know what you do about it. Um, short of, I suppose, encouraging greediness. Um, I mean, I have to, no, I mean, let me change that slightly. I do think actually um, people making those decisions are actually rather bad decisions in terms of life and lifestyle. Because actually, uh, if you can set up a high-tech business and do that, you're actually doing something pretty exciting and uh, energizing. And uh, most people find those sort of things pretty productive and give one a great sense of self-fulfillment. And then dropping it and going off and... Oops. Um, uh, and, you know, just messing around. Is I think a very bad career's choice, as my wife will no doubt explain, which is why I'm sitting here, well past retirement age, talking about a, a book I've written. Uh, 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 but but you know that it's it's got to be about people's personal career choices, and I think it's a, as a whole it's a bad career choice, um, and they get more fun and interest out of life if they stuck with it. Okay. Um, uh, question is GDP the right measure? Well, the problem about GDP is it, um, um, people go on and on about this. GDP measures the uh, gross value added per capita in the economy. And that is a very important thing to know. And, um, uh, and it's very important in terms of running an economy. It does not. Uh, it's not and cannot measure quality of life and other things. That you have to measure in other ways. And if you find that the pursuit of GDP is impacting uh, wrongly on the quality of life, that's when you need regulations and things to uh, incentivize people to get it back into balance or you'd stop them doing whatever it is. Uh, you don't try and change GDP. GDP measures simply gross value added per capita. It has the great value uh, that we can all agree how you measure it, uh, and therefore you can make comparisons between countries. And it's incredibly important in things like measuring tax and benefits and all these things. Uh, but it doesn't measure uh, human welfare. And in spite of attempts to try and do that, uh, I've seen none of the work. So I think you want to measure human welfare on a different scales, and if you find these are in conflict, uh, then you need to regulate or change the environment uh, in which people run businesses. Um, uh, and and that, I think that applies to the last question, which mm. is uh, the question of consumption of resources. Um, uh, I have to say, it's not at all clear to me that um, there is this uh, total link between uh, um, increases in GDP and, for example, energy uses. In fact, there isn't. 
um, uh, if, if we start having, um, you know, if, if we start spending money on going to the theatre or doing these other things, they have no relation to consumption of goods. And one of the real challenges to science and technology is to reduce the energy usage um, of the goods and services we provide. So that's, that's where I think you need to put uh, the resource. Uh, but, but generally, uh, you shouldn't say, look, now we've got to cut back on growth uh, because of the consumption of resources. Um, what we have to do is use those resources more, more effectively. And in any case, um, probably growth in the future will come less from uh, goods which actually have to be produced and use resources. Okay. Well, Thainsbury, thank you very much for making us think creatively about windows of opportunities and the sources of wealth. And for those of you who'd like to think some more, there are copies of the book available outside, and Lord Thainsbury will be signing them uh, here on stage. So feel free to get those. But I, before we do that, if you could join me in thanking him for a wonderful... <laughs>